Hello and welcome to Asia Abridged. I'm Matt Schiavenza. October 20th marks the nine-month anniversary of President Trump's inauguration. And so far, much of his administration's foreign policy has dealt with Asia, something that many experts expected would happen. To get a sense of how Trump is doing in Asia and to find out what lies ahead, I caught up with Daniel Russell. He's the diplomat in residence and senior fellow at the Asia Society and, formerly, was President Obama's point person for Asia. To begin with, I brought up the elephant in the room, North Korea. During his speech last month at the United Nations General Assembly, Trump derided North Korean leader Kim Jong-un as, quote, rocket man and said that Kim's regime was on a suicide mission. The insult generated instant press attention and, like everything else involving Trump, delighted his supporters while alarming his critics. I asked Russell what he thought about Trump's approach to North Korea. Well, I think that credibility and, frankly, predictability, to a certain extent, are important elements of deterrence and of U.S. policy and strategy towards North Korea. It's always tempting to try to backfoot the North Koreans or the other guy, but it's harder than it looks, and it carries some considerable risks. I think that, on balance, it's important for the administration to give clear and consistent messages and to make sure that those messages are delivered from all parts of the U.S. government. You know, snarky nicknames and that sort of thing may work in, you know, domestic politics, but I don't think any of the president's opponents in the Republican primary had nuclear weapons. Kim Jong-un does. And I think most analysts see the personalization and the name-calling as really a tactical blunder in dealing with North Korea for a couple of reasons. For one, it actually gives Kim Jong-un the status that he craves as a counterpart, even as an equal to the President of the United States. I think, particularly in Asia, dictators are notoriously thin-skinned. and So, you know, to what effect would the leader of the free world be calling Kim Jong-un names? It's, uh, if anything, an incentive to retaliate, which is obviously not what we want. The fact is you're never going to win a name-calling contest with a, you know, a Leninist dictator who's got not only a big propaganda department, but also a thesaurus, you know, and will (laughs) come hurling back. You know, he's the one who introduced doddered into (laughs) Americans' vocabularies. But but the bigger issue, I would say, about communication is the tweet that we saw when uh, Secretary Rex Tillerson had just wrapped up his lightning-quick visit to China, where he was seeking in advance of the president's visit next month to solicit more Chinese cooperation on North Korea. He had barely finished assuring the Chinese and then the press that the United States was keeping the door open to dialogue when the president tweeted this now kind of infamous, stop wasting your time, Rex, you know, we'll take care of it message that's elicited not a positive reaction in terms of North Korean behavior, but 
a frenzy of media speculation about whether Secretary Tillerson was on the way out. And that sort of thing, I think, on balance, raises questions about our strategy. It weakens our hand. It probably diminishes the willingness of the Chinese to fully cooperate with us. And I'm sure I know that it's highly unsettling to our allies. A key component to a successful U.S. policy in Asia depends on Washington's relationship with two key allies in the region, Japan and South Korea. Since President Trump took office, American ties with Seoul and Tokyo haven't always been warm. But Russell noted that having a common adversary has brought them together. I think that uh, Donald Trump inherited a very strong trilateral relationship, the relationship between the U.S. and Seoul, Korea, the U.S. between Tokyo, Japan, and the relationship among all three countries. And I think that both Prime Minister Abe and President Moon have made a measurable effort to try to keep the significant historical points of friction under control in their bilateral relationship. It's true that President Trump at one point made a pejorative reference to President Moon and appeasement in a tweet. The fact of the matter is that given the political party and the political background of Moon Jae-in, what we have seen in terms of his strong endorsement of both the USROK alliance, ultimately his willingness to deploy the THAAD defense missile defense system, for example, but also his fidelity to the maximum pressure strategy, which runs counter to his instincts and to his political platform. I think that I would describe his approach as the best that we could have hoped for, if not a little better. That's a net positive. But at the end of the day, Matt, I think all credit or at least the lion's share of the credit goes to Kim Jong-un because it is always easier to maintain close alliance unity when North Korea is misbehaving and when threats from the DPRK are driving us together. So for now, I think trilateral cooperation is good. There's much, much more that we can and should be doing, both on the diplomatic and particularly on the military and defense side. I think there's some high-level talks coming at the deputy secretary level soon. That's something that Tony Blinken started under Secretary Kerry. But the hard part will come if and when North Korea appears to be softening its position. North Korea is a master at divide-and-conquer strategies. And typically what it does, and I think we could reason reasonably expect in the future is to engineer some kind of proffer directly to the United States, deliberately trying to put South Korea off to the side in the position of being a mere puppet of the United States, not worthy of dialogue with Kim Jong-un. And using that exclusive engagement with the U.S. as, as part of the strategy also to shake down Japan for money and to weaken the solidarity between the allies and, frankly, with China. And that's something that we need to be very careful about. Next month, President Trump heads to Asia for his first trip to the continent since taking office. What should we look out for? Russell explains. I think there is abundant risk and that the president will be faced with a high wire act going from Tokyo to Seoul to Beijing and then on to the APEC leaders meeting in Da Nang, Vietnam, and then on to the East Asia summit and the ASEAN 
leaders' meetings in Manila. But look, I mean, at the end of the day, the fact that Donald Trump is going, is going to Asia and is going to APEC, is going to EAS, that's hugely important. And we're talking five stops over 10 or 11 days for a U.S. president that is extremely long and extremely ambitious and extremely grueling. So let's pray that he sees the trip through and, and doesn't hit the eject button before the last stop. The big question, uh, setting aside all of the complexities and potential challenges that he's going to face in each capital, frankly, uh, is can he demonstrate, despite the precipitant withdrawal of the U.S. from TPP, which is hugely uh, troubling and unpopular among virtually all of our friends and partners in Asia, with the possible exception of China. Despite his America First rhetoric, which has created great unease and uh, some anxiety in the region, despite his uh, renunciation of the Paris Climate Accord and his apparent indifference to the challenge of climate change and global warming, which is a hugely important issue to the region. And I think for the Chinese, something of a black eye since uh, the U.S.-China climate agreement was arguably one of the most successful products of U.S.-China diplomacy that we've seen. And despite his own political and even legal problems here at home, and and against the backdrop of a tremendously activist China, can he demonstrate that the U.S. is going to engage in the Asia-Pacific in a sustained manner, in an effective manner, and in a manner that inspires other countries to follow our lead, even when it may not be in the short-term interest of those countries? Thanks for listening to Asia Abridged. If you'd like to hear more, you can visit our show page at asiasociety.org slash podcast. And you could also subscribe to us on iTunes or follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Asia Society. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.